You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. For a word of prayer before we open up God's word together. God, thank you so much for being a part of everything that's happened here thus far in the past eight years. Father, we know that we only stand here because of your mercy and your grace upon us. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness from seeing a church with nothing be established to seeing so many souls saved and lives changed and sin broken and so many stories of restoration only by your mercy and grace. God, it's not because we're strong. We are weak, Father. In fact, it's because you are strong and you are awesome and you are good and you're continually drawing people to yourself that Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ, might be magnified throughout the whole earth. Thank you, God, for just allowing us this moment. Thank you for our baptisms this morning and seeing how you continue to work among us. And Lord, we ask as we open up your word now that you would, that you would speak to us, God, that you'd make your word come alive, that, that dead souls in this place would become alive, that darkness would turn to light. Father, that we would all see and behold, not just in our minds, but in our hearts and with our lives, the wonder of Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord. We're so grateful, we're so grateful you're in our lives. We're so grateful that our church is founded on you and you alone. And so now use this service, God, to magnify your son in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Mark uh, chapter 2. As you turn there, I just want to add a few um, comments of my own about the anniversary service, but Mark chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, uh, please get your hand up, and Usher will be happy to give you a copy of God's Word. We want you to know that the things I'm saying today aren't from me. I'm just a guy, and I don't have as much wisdom as you might think I have. I'm just trying to tell you what God's Word says in a way that I pray will impact your lives. So Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning, and as you get there, again, put your hand up if you don't have a Bible. If you don't have one at home, please take this home with you. This is our gift to you as a church. We'd love for you to take this and read this and seek the Lord, for we know you'll find Him if you seek Him with all your heart through the Word of God. Now, but as you turn this, reminiscing a little bit this week about eight years, and eight years ago, on October 2nd, 2011, it was much like a day like today. It was dreary, it was rainy, and we were sitting in a little circle before church going, is anyone going to show up to church today? And quite honestly, we had no idea what God was going to do. We had this little group of 80 people that had grown from 20. We started with about 20 people praying in one of our elders' houses that God would establish a church, and 20 of us prayed, and by the time we launched, there was 80. That first Sunday, 257 people showed up from who knows where. And God has been at work ever since, and we've just been so privileged to be a part of it. And I know some of you have been here from the, who's been here from the beginning, all eight years. Awesome. You've seen God do many things, amen? And we know it's not because of us, but it's been great to be a part of. And for those of you who have joined us since those eight years, we're so glad you've joined us. And we are praying that God will only take us into greater things for him in the next eight years to come. And so I want you to be encouraged by that and celebrating that with us today. In fact, we're going to have cake after service. How do you celebrate without cake, right? So don't think cake too much. We're going to get the word of God. But cake after service, join us, get to know uh, some new friends today in the Lord. I also want to just comment quickly. Last week, we were not here. We weren't um, vacationing at the ocean at all, but we were actually overseas in Scotland, uh, preaching at one of the churches that we have uh, helped along the way, Harvest uh, in Glasgow. And uh, what an encouragement to be there and see this. Again, they've been going 10 years, this little church in Scotland. The gospel is it's not really a popular thing, and it's hard. And this little church has grown to about 150, 60 people. And to be in a room, we help them 
them get into their building last year, sent a team over there to help them get established in a building, and just to see the, the life of God at work, it was just encouraging, and, uh, and uh, we're going to hopefully have some teams going over to Scotland to partner with them further away, so if you want to be a part of that, start praying about that, and I just want to just also tell you that God is doing things all around the world in ways we wouldn't expect. I tell you this often, I'll tell you again, we are but a crumb of a sliver of the pie of what God is doing in the world. So often churches think, we're the only thing, we're the only thing, we're not the only thing. Can you say it with me? We're not the only thing. Aren't you glad we're not? That means God to be really small. But God is big and he's working all over the, the world. And so uh, really cool to be a part of a partners, partnering with churches around the world to see what God is going to do. And so I want you to be thinking about praying about missions too. There's lots on the radar as we come to a new season of uh, our church life. All right, now to the text. You ready? Everyone got it? Let's just read it and get right into it. I have entitled this sermon, It's a New Day. It's a New Day. Uh, Jesus Christ coming, and Mark is really trying to show us that Jesus isn't just any ordinary man. He's not an ordinary teacher. He is, in fact, the Son of God. We've been studying vintage Jesus, just trying to know who Jesus is. And, and here's another word to add to your repertoire in describing Jesus. He is, get this, revolutionary. He's revolutionary. Jesus, when he came, truly changed and changes everything. He changed the world. He changed the way we relate to God. He changes our lives and the disposition of our hearts. He changes the way we see the world. He changes the way we relate to those around us. And he especially changes the way that we do church and the way we interact with God. He provides hope. He provides new life. And he provides a new way. And here's what we're studying today. A question about fasting as we think about Jesus and the new day Jesus brought with him. Let's read verses 18 to 28. And then I will unpack this in a way that I pray challenges and encourages your hearts. The little subtitle says, a question about fasting. This is the word of the Lord. This is God speaking to us today. Here's what he wants us to know today. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? In other words, what's wrong with your guys, Jesus? And Jesus said to them this, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But the new wine, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. Verse 23, on the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him? In other words, guys, have you not read your Bibles? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So in our church, here's what we do if you're visiting with us. We just go through, a, pick a book, and we go through it verse by verse. So we can't skip anything. We can't just make it what we want to say. We just want to hear what God has to say. And so we come up to a text that is quite honestly a little difficult to understand sometimes. And it has great implications for us, however. And so I want you to understand this in the best way possible. So I'm going to keep it simple today with my sermon notes. But if you are taking notes, I want you to write this down. When it comes to a new day, Jesus changes all the rules in relating to God. When Jesus came, he changed all the rules in relating to God. 
Probably like me, if you've played games with people before, we know there's rule makers. Halfway through the game, the rules change, right? Like my son, my 15-year-old son, sometimes halfway through the game, the rules change. Like, I didn't know that rule. He's like, yeah, I just made that one up, Dad. And then there's rule breakers, right? And you all play games with people that break all the rules. They're always cheating. They're always cheating. Well, Jesus did neither of them. He didn't make the rules or break the rules. He came and brought us a whole new way of relating to God. He, made, he changed the whole game, and he brought him with him a whole different reality when it comes to our relationship with God and how we relate to God. And so this is first determined, uh, demonstrated through fasting. Jesus changing all the rules through fasting. If you see here in verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees, uh, they were fasting and they were, they were depriving themselves of physical food in order to seek God. Notice, not just John's disciples were fasting, the Pharisees were fasting, the religious people of the day who really had no idea of Jesus and who Jesus was or what he came to do, but they were fasting. It was a religious practice of the day. And so the people came to Jesus and everyone's trying to trick him up, trip him up. Just like today, everyone's trying to like find little loopholes in his story to prove that he wasn't the son of God, that he wasn't the Messiah, because we'll take anything but the son of God and Messiah, right? Because that means that we have to fall under his authority. And so they were trying to trip him up. They're like, hey, Jesus, how come like John's disciples are fasting and the Pharisees are fasting? But what's wrong with your dudes? Not quite so spiritual, are they? We have to understand that fasting in the Bible was prescribed by God as a way to come to him only in one instance, though, particularly on the Day of Atonement. So the day when the priests would go in the temple and atone for all the sins of the people, those who needed their sins atoned, which is pretty much all of us, right? Right? Not just you, me too. They would fast and deprive themselves of food to show God how serious they were about the wickedness of their sin and how they needed God to desperately rescue them from their sin. But other than that one day, fasting was not really prescribed in the Bible as a thing that we had to do. It was a voluntary practice. And uh, oftentimes, though, in the Old Testament, we see that people fasted for the mourning the loss of a loved one. They wanted to like, seek the Lord for healing. There was illness, and so they'd fast and pray for God to, to, to speak and to come and, and do something significant. Bad times they'd fast. They fasted to show their serious pursuit of God. So they deprived themselves of food or any other luxury or enjoyment in order to solely focus on a dedicated pursuit of God for a spiritual purpose. This is the point of fasting. God, I want to be done with everything else. What I need now, most of all, and only all, is just you. New Testament, we see fasting. Again, it's not something prescribed for us that you have to do. And it's interesting that when Jesus talked about fasting in the New Testament, he said it as if he just expected we would do it. When you fast, not if you fast was the way Jesus talked about fasting. We see Jesus just in the few chapters before this, fasting 40 days. Can you imagine 40 days of fasting? How many of you can last 40 minutes without eating? Jesus, 40 days without fasting, he demonstrated for us what it was to truly seek after God. Aside from the passage that we read in Mark chapter 1, um, Matthew chapter 6 uh, shows us a little bit about fasting, Acts 9 uh, and 13 and 14. Uh, other than that, there's not too many passages in the New Testament about fasting, but we know that it is very significant for believers. In fact, Acts records believers fasting before they made important decisions. Acts records people fasting as they prayed, as a way to say, God, I'm done with me. I want to get lower. I want you to be greater, to seek the face of God. 
So the New Testament fasting was an admirable, an admirable act of spiritual devotion as a matter of Christian freedom, not obligation. It's a freedom thing. So whether picking on Jesus' disciples for not fasting, I'm not sure. But again, trying to trip him up, right? Trying to prove that he wasn't Jesus. And so this is the question posed uh, before Jesus. And we see in health magazines, there's physical benefits of fasting, the weight loss and improving the health and living longer, apparently, is what fasting does. But the spiritual benefits are what was most highlighted in the Bible. They're the express commitment and dedication and refinement of your own soul to show that you mean serious business with the Lord. And so the Pharisees would fast every Monday and Thursday. So important was fasting that even part of the Jewish literature is just dedicated to fasting. But the problem was, the problem was that the Pharisees had come to see fasting as something that would be, that would make them more spiritual in everybody else's eyes. So if I fast, God then has to respond or everybody else is going to think that I am way up here when they're way down here. They got it all flipped around. And fasting means nothing to God if it's just a ritual and a mark of spiritual piety instead of humility. And so John's disciples are fasting. We're not sure what they're fasting about, probably because John was in jail. They're probably asking God, please don't let him be beheaded, as is going to happen in the next few chapters. Maybe they're longing for the Messiah because John is preaching the Messiah, and they're like, yes, God, we want the Messiah so bad. Please come. Pharisees are probably fasting, like I said, so that everyone's like, ooh, look at the Pharisees. They're so religious. They're so spiritual. Bottom line, everybody was doing it. But who? Jesus. But he's the most religious. He's the most spiritual. What's wrong with him? In fact, there was nothing wrong with him. Look what Jesus says next. He's trying to bring this to a wedding analogy to show who he truly is. And Jesus said to them, I love how he answers questions. He answers questions with a question to really honestly make them really think and sometimes make them really look silly for their question. Here's his response. Why are your people not spiritual? Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. When the bridegroom goes, then they're going to fast again. But what what this statement is, he's he's equating himself with the bridegroom. Like, I am the bridegroom. In the olden days, the the weddings would be not just like a a ceremony and a big meal after. They'd celebrate for a whole week. And when the bridegroom would come, that, that would not be a time to choose to do a fast. It's like Christmas or Thanksgiving. Who wants to fast at Christmas or Thanksgiving? Yeah, nobody's hand is up, right? One person, but he's mistaken. (laughs) Try that for an hour and a half at Christmas dinner. And Jesus is saying the bridegroom is here. The celebration is coming. Old Testament, he was the bridegroom for his people. New Testament, he is the bridegroom for his church. church. He's basically saying like, I am God. I am the son of God. And now that I am physically present, the time that he's physically present, there's no time for mourning. There's no time for the serious business of the religious ritual. There's now time just to simply rejoice in the presence of Jesus Christ. The fasting stuff will come again, but now, right now, it's just rejoicing in me. See, the former times allowed for fasting, but such fasting when Jesus was present on earth was unsuitable and unseemly. It was a time to be merry. It was a time to dance. It was a time to feast. Jewish people were not not quite on that same page. They were so serious about their faith. They were so ritualistic. And Jesus said, throw all that stuff away. Now's the time to feast. Now's the time to rejoice and even dance at the presence of the Son of God. 
pastor simply suggesting this, that the way to God is not through religious practices, but through joyful association with Jesus. And yeah, fasting is still for us, because it's after Jesus is gone, but, but the point is this, that it's not through religious practices, but through joyful association with Jesus. It's a brand new day. It's a brand new day. How do we know it's a brand new day? Because he gives two illustrations here right from the text. I love how the text sometimes gives us illustrations, so I don't have to come up with them. See what it says? They're going to fast in that day, but no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new, the new from the old, and, the, uh, and, and a worse tear is made. I don't think we really patch things anymore. Um, we, we in our house, we throw them out when they get holes in them. But the custom before was to patch them up. And so your pair of kids' jeans goes through the wash and the dryer many times, it shrinks. You put a new patch on that hole in the old jeans. You put that in the dryer, guess what? That patch is going to shrink. It's going to make the hole bigger. And he's like, that's what's going to happen if you try to put all the rituals in the same place with Jesus. Here's another illustration, the wineskin, saying the same thing in a different way. And no one puts new wine in old wineskin. This is goat skin they had. And uh, when you put new wine in old wineskin, what would happen is the new wine would produce gases and, the, and the, cause the wineskin to expand and old ones would crack. New ones, though, could expand to the gases and they wouldn't crack, they wouldn't break. And so Jesus is saying the same thing. If you put old wine in new wineskin, the wine is destroyed and so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. And basically what he's trying to say here is in both illustrations that there's a new age of the kingdom of God that is not a patch over of the Mosaic law. It's a whole new deal. Old Judaism, with all of its traditional religious practices, is totally incompatible with the new reality of Jesus Christ and Christianity. Interesting, isn't it? He's not saying that the old is all wrong or evil, but the time has passed now And in the coming inaugurated kingdom of God, this has resulted in a brand new day. And now the full reality of one's expression of faith is only through Jesus Christ. Amen? In essence, what he's saying is out with the old, in with the new. It's a feasting time, not a fasting time. It's a celebration time, not a cerebral time. Jesus brought with him a whole new way of relating to God. Old Testament, New Testament. Old, we don't throw it away, right? We see through the old how we can, we can clearly see who God is. We see who we are. We see how God interacts with people f- throughout all of history. God is the same yesterday, today, and... So don't toss the Old Testament. There's so many good things in there, but why don't we live out the Old Testament in the same way they did in Jesus' day because Jesus came to bring in something brand new. It's a New Testament. It's a new covenant with his people. Old Testament, Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant, and he's freeing us from all the old legalistic ways of relating to God, and he's bringing to us a vibrant, vital relationship with Jesus Christ in its place. Traditions aren't bad. They're not wrong, but if you lose an awe of God, a love for God, and just start doing all these things to think that you're right with God, you miss the whole point. God's like saying, that's not the point of this whole thing, relationship with God. It's through Jesus Christ, a living, vital, alive relationship with Jesus Christ that now brings you into the presence of God. It's not ritualistic. It's not dry. It's not go through the motions religion like all the other religions on the earth. This is a living, active, joyful celebration of Jesus in his presence. Really, this section's pointing out to us right away here is 
When Jesus came, you know what he wanted to emphasize? Relationship over ritual. You with me? You got all quiet all of a sudden. Relationship over ritual or even tradition. Listen, we in the New Testament era get to come before God with a freedom of soul to simply love God and relate to God and live out our faith in God as opposed to all the legalistic obligations and religious practices of the Old Testament. It's no longer, if I do this and don't do this, I'll be in a right standing with God. It's no longer like that. Thank the Lord. Because you and I can't live up to all the Old Testament prescriptions of what it is to be a Christian. I can't do it. Can you? Thank the Lord. It's no longer, if I'm really going to be spiritual, then I have to fill in your blank. It's got to stop here because so many get caught up here. So many people get caught up here in their expressions of faith. How many times have I heard as a pastor, but my traditions say, and if you don't do it this way, then it's not right before God. I'm like, really? Show me in the Bible. We now come to God. Of course, we don't throw out all the traditions, right? Baptism and communion and some of those things that God has given us. We, we keep some of the old is in the new. The new contract has kept some of the old, so we keep that stuff and we live by that stuff, but not out of trying to earn favor with God. Who can earn favor with God? We can't. We're sinners, all of us. Broken, messed up on your best day. You make how many different choices that are wrong? I make countless. But it's no longer I have to, I must. It's now I'm coming to Jesus because he has done it all already for us on the cross. Now I come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't be the perfect person. He looks at you and says, I know. That's why I died in your place. That's why I took the nails. I took the punishment you deserved. I lived the life you couldn't live and took the punishment you deserved. I, you don't have to. Just come to me and I will cover over all your sin. I will make you right before God. You can't do it. I will do it. Awesome. A little bit awesome? Phenomenal. This is really the gospel of what Jesus is pointing out. It's a gospel. Again, traditions aren't bad, but if we don't find them Specifically in scripture, we can't be passing them off or forcing them on anybody else. Your relationship with God flows from a heart that loves God, not outward actions that mean nothing. If we just go through the motions, we're like the Pharisees, just trying to be good religious people. It means nothing before God. We have to go through the Tim Hortons drive through for our kids, and one of the things I always ask when we get Timbits is, please no powdered Timbits, for obvious reasons. One, they're gross. Leave them all pasty. For two, there's... There's, there's powder everywhere. Unfortunately, one or two times we've gone, they've actually slipped a few powdered donuts in there. So in order to keep the kids from making a mess of the car, I'll take the powdered donuts and pop them in. Got my coffee there ready to wash it down. And the only good thing about powdered donuts is a little bit of jam in the middle, right? Reality is I've had a, on one occasion I got a powdered donut and I was like, Ugh, I'll take the powdered one. And threw it in. There was even no jam in the middle. <laughs> what a waste is that? No substance. Nothing good. It's, it's the same if we try to adorn ourselves on the outside with all these religious rituals and try to make everyone look how powdery we are spiritually and, and, there's, no, and there's no jam on the inside. It's the jam on the inside that makes the, the powdered donuts. It's a life in Christ on the inside that makes our spirituality truly alive. Everything else is disgusting. It's gross. And let me be honest with you, sometimes religion... 
can even stop us from seeing all of Jesus. The prayers we recite, the customs we reenact, the creeds we chant, the songs we sing, the rules we come up with in regards to alcohol and cards and reading routines and leisure time and pastime preferences. Sometimes even our rituals take us from the full reality of the new thing. Get this, the new thing that Jesus came to do. Just relate to us. Love us. Walk with us. Allow him to change our lives and allow the fruit to grow instead of us trying to manufacture fruit in our, in our own strength. Watch many believers take this hard path of at one time loving Jesus with all their heart and somehow getting into this legalistic mindset of now if all the things I do and if I'm spiritual, I do. And it's a catastrophe. It takes people away from loving Jesus. As a Christians, we should be loving Jesus more as we age and not less. It should be more about relationship and not less about relationship. Uh, Jesus came to make everything uh, brand new and, and going through the motions is out. Rejoicing in Jesus is in. And so I even want to give you a heart check this morning and a gut check and say, really, really, as you live your Christian life today, are you delighting in Jesus? Or are you focusing on the duty you have before the Lord? Duty or delight? I've even worked on church boards where the People on the board have become so involved and this is what we do that there's no life of Christ still alive in them. One of the deacons in one of our first churches would leave his Bible on his shelf, on the shelf of the coat rack every week and, and I asked his son-in-law, so what does he do throughout the rest of the, rest of the week? He's like, oh, he doesn't do that stuff, it's only for show. Sadly today, that man is nowhere near the Lord. At that time, I thought he was spiritual. Jesus came to give us a whole new lease on, on the spiritual practices that we do. No longer do we read the word of God because we have to read the word of God is what we do. But we get to commune with God through his word. We get to see the full reality of God through his word. No longer do we pray because it's the, the got to pray before meals and pray before bed. No, we pray because it's a live chat with God himself through Jesus Christ. Whole difference there. We get to commune with the living God. We worship not because they're good Christian songs to sing and they're all theologically accurate, because it stirs our soul to see Jesus and to reconnect with Jesus Christ. We worship, and as we worship, God's Spirit takes us and he makes our souls alive in Jesus. We evangelize not because, oh man, we got to, and if I don't, I'm going to be a bad Christian. No, we evangelize because Jesus Christ has changed us and we see his love for us. We want everyone else to experience the same love that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. We want them to experience a transformation in Jesus the way we have. See how it changes things? And we even fast now different than the Pharisees fasted. They might have fasted Monday and Thursday. It meant nothing. We fast now because we want to seek God, because we want God more than anything else, because we're longing for his return. And we do it with a right heart. Here's a quote I came, up, I came across this week as I studied from Desiring God, talking about fasting and how fasting, even though it seems like Jesus is saying don't fast, he's saying just not when he's here don't fast because the bridegroom is here, it's a wedding feast time, but once he goes away, it says right in the text, then we'll fast again. Here's how we're supposed to fast. Fasting is for this world, for stretching our hearts to get fresh air beyond the pain and trouble around us. It is for the battle against the sin, have it, and weakness completely inside of us. We express our discontent with our sinful selves. I don't know about you, but I am so discontent with my sinful self, I make myself sick some days. And longing for more of Christ in us to change us. When Jesus returns, fasting will be done with. 
to temporary measure for this life and age to enrich our joy in Jesus and prepare our hearts for what's next. For seeing him face to face. When he returns, he will not call us to fast, but he's going to throw a feast. Then all holy abstinence will have served its glorious purpose and be seen by all for the stunning gift it was. Until then, we will fast. So why do we fast? Because we long for Jesus. Because we want more of him in my life. We want more fruitfulness. We want more sin broken. We want more of God's activity all around us. We want more power. We want more wisdom. We want more awareness of Jesus. We want more longing for Christ. We want more of Jesus and less of me. That's the only path to true fulfillment. More of Jesus and less of me. Don't buy into the world. That's all garbage. This is the true path to fulfillment. We want to show Christ and we want to show ourselves that we really mean serious business with God from the heart. So where do you start with fasting? Start small. I know some of you have never done a fast before. Start small. Think of something. Maybe you can't food because you're diabetic. Think of something you need to go without. How about your cell phone or the internet? But not just for the sake of going without, but for the sake of seeking God. You need to do a fast. Your fast isn't just so you can like watch hockey highlights instead of eating. It's to then seek God in that time. Set some goals, set some agendas, and take time out to truly seek God. If you've never done this before, it's truly, truly a revolutionary experience. Fasting, but not letting anyone else know about it, because Jesus is clear about that too. If you do it like that, then the Pharisees know, I'm fasting today, good for you. You lost your reward. <laughs> but you fast to seek God. When's the last time you took time out of all the things you have going on just to seek God because you want more of God? Because you want to show God how serious your heart is about him. Because you need answers that no one can give you. Because you need God to do something in your life that only he can do. I want to warn you as you hopefully endeavor to fast sometime in the future. And again, Jesus never said, if you fast. He said, when you fast. To not expect always God's going to do exactly what you expect him to do. God's not one of those guys that go, well, I'm going to fast. and you have to answer my prayer in exactly the way I want it answered. And if I fast for a day, then you're going to give me all the answers, all the questions I have, and then we'll all be good. That's not how God works. In fact, most of the times I fast, guess what? I've gotten almost zero answers to the questions I've asked. And the reasons I fast, but you know what God's done in my life? He's shown me all the things that I still need to grow in. He's shown me what he wants to do in me more than through me. He's drawn me closer to himself. He's shown me a greater picture of who he is, which is far greater than all the answers of the questions that I had when I went into the fast. Jesus came to change all the rules. Let me ask you one more time before we move on. Are you, are you in relationship or are you living ritual? If it's ritual, it's boring, it's stale, it's old, you're getting grumpy, you're getting angry, you're realizing you can't do it, there's no life to your faith, and you're like, what's wrong with God? There's nothing wrong with God. He beckons you to a relationship with him. He beckons you to come through Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ. How do I relate to God? I don't know. All this religious stuff seems, seems all over the place. Here's how, you, here's, how, here's how you come to Jesus Christ. God, I'm a sinner. There's this gap between me and, me and yourself, yourself and I. I can't cross that gap. I have to be perfect to get to heaven. I can't do it. I'm going to come to Jesus and trust that he's done it all. I'm going to lay myself at Jesus' feet and say, Jesus, here I am. You've given yourself for me. I now will give myself to you for the rest of my days. Just make my soul alive. And he will answer that prayer in a real way. 
in a meaningful heart, with a meaningful heart. Fasting is the number one way Jesus shows in this text, in this text, how he changes everything. Here's the second way, as expressed through the Sabbath. Jesus changes all the rules as expressed through the Sabbath, verses 23 to 28. Sometime later, as Jesus was walking with his disciples, this whole fasting thing happened. Sometime later, the disciples were walking through a grain field. They were going to where they're going next, they're plucking some heads of grain to eat, and the Pharisees were uh, always behind him, always looking to trip him up, always trying to find a way to, again, accuse him and, and brush off this Jesus stuff. They didn't want this Jesus stuff. They said to him, look, look, like little Tattletown class, right? Look what he's doing. Why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? Interesting to note, verse 24, the Pharisees, uh, that word Pharisee tells you a lot about the people. They were the people who thought they were super high and mighty and religious, and they took some good commandments God had given in the Old Testament. One of them was Exodus 20, like, like keep the Sabbath day and make it holy and, and don't work and some different things like that in Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. But here's what the Pharisees did. They, they took that law and they took the don't work principle and they said, well, you know what? Let's, let's make this even better to make sure that no one ever crosses that line and offends God. Let's make a whole bunch of other rules around this one rule and then we'll call that more spiritual. So they came up with 39 ways that you could actually break God's law of working. When God just said don't work, they said, well, here's, let's break it down for you in a way, and one-third of those were actually in relation to uh, reaping on harvest. And so on Sunday, they weren't allowed to, to do that, but that's not exactly what God said. Although the Sabbath is one of the most distinctive elements of the Jews that set them apart for God as legislated in Scripture, uh, clearly Jesus had something different in mind when he came that wasn't going to be so uh, fit into a, a little mold. Uh, clearly in the Old Testament, uh, Sunday was a no-fly zone day in many ways. No work, no rest. And so uh, all these laws they put around. So some of these laws that the Pharisees put around were things like this. Like, okay, you're not supposed to work on, on the Sabbath, so we're going to say that you can't take more than 1,999 steps on the Sabbath. No one in Scriptures that say that. And if you do, the Sabbath police are going to be at your door at the 2,000th step. Well, who's counting? Somebody. Imagine how stressful that would be, like, 998, oh man, how's this there? I need to get there, 999, oh wow. In fact, the Old Testament said that they could take grain on the Sabbath. It was lawful on the Sabbath to take grain. It says that in Deuteronomy 23, 25, picking a little grain by hand from a neighbor's field is legal, but they made this illegal. It's like the, the Pharisees put all these little laws around it. It's like if your mom would have come in and said, hey, hey, well, I'm gone, please don't sit on this chair, my favorite chair. So then your big brother comes in and says, hey, mom said don't sit on the chair, but now, now I'm going to take it a little further. Don't even, don't even look at the chair. In fact, why don't, we, why don't we, don't even be in the same room as the chair. You ever had older brothers that would do that? Meanies. Better yet, let, let, let's like stay out of the house. We're not even going to come in the house so there's no chance of you sitting on the chair. How ridiculous is that? That's what the, that's what the Pharisees were doing with the law. Jesus looks at them and he's like, Seriously? Verse 25. I love how Jesus doesn't, just doesn't back down. Hey, He's not like, all right, sorry guys. Have you never read what David did? Don't you study the Bible? He's referring to the passage in 1 Samuel 21, 1-6, where David and all his little henchmen were running for their lives, and they were starving. And uh, back in that day, they would take 12 loaves of bread. The priests would consecrate the 12 loaves of bread. They would sit in the temple uh, for seven days, six days, as a, as, as a, uh, to signify that God's presence and God's provision were upon the people. At the end of that six days, the priests would eat the bread. But no one was allowed to eat the bread except for the priests. David and his guys come bumbling into the, the temple, and they're like, We're starving. 
give me some bread. They actually ate the bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but they did it because they were hungry and they got away with it. In the time of Abiathar, the high priest, actually, if you read that text, it's a different name in there, just to point out for you, those of you who are going to read that First Samuel passage and be like, oh, I don't know about this, and you're going to read it and find a different name. You're like, aha, there's mistakes in the Bible. Actually, it's not a mistake. Uh, Abiathar, the high priest, and his father, as, as uh, Ahimelech, as mentioned in First Samuel, were uh, kind of running at the same time, so they're both, they're both correct, they're both true. But what Jesus was teaching them was, if David could do this, they revered David. If David could do this, how much more I, the son of God, the king of all kings, the king ordained by God to be the one king forever. If David did this and fed people on the Sabbath, which is okay because people come over practices, then why is it not right for me to do this with my people? Here's his point, Jesus' point in this portion of Scripture. When he's talking about David, how he entered the house and ate the bread of the presence, it was okay for him. Here's what Jesus is trying to tell them. Jesus is simply hammering home the, what we've already studied in the Scripture. He has the authority over everything, every law, every custom, everything. Jesus has the authority over everything. Really what he's doing, he's making a Christological statement of his own authority. We see this throughout Mark. One of Mark's main goals in giving us this book is to show us that Jesus has authority over what? Everything. We've seen it already in Mark. He's got authority over demons. He's got authority over physical realm. He ate with sinners and tax collectors. It was like a no-no oh, back then. He has authority even over the Sabbath day. He overrides all traditions and laws. His presence turns feasting and mourning into fast feasting and celebration, and it even overcomes all of the Sabbath laws that God had given beforehand. And the last words of this text say it all. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, Master, Adonai, even of the Sabbath. Even an old rabbi, Simeon ben Meniasa, says this, The Sabbath is delivered over for your sake, but you are not delivered over to the Sabbath for God's sake. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the Sabbath was created for us, that we needed rest, our employees needed rest. Our animals needed rest. Our fields needed rest. It's created for us, not as a way to be super holy, spiritual, but to show God how important we are to him. Sabbath was for the rest of the bodies and renewal of souls and to re-up our resolve to follow God. The Sabbath was never meant to be an end in itself or the greatest good. It was God's gift to us. And so Jesus is affirming his right to determine Sabbath observance. This is what he's saying in verse 28. I determine the right to say whatever I want to say about any topic I want to say it about, including the Sabbath day. And Jesus trumps it all. So where does this leave us? Here's some personal application points from this section. I think what Jesus is trying to show us clearly as we study scriptures is this. It's people over laws. It's people over the laws of even religious laws. Other people matter over all of our ceremonial ways of trying to relate to God. 
it's ridiculous for us to think that honoring God and forgetting about people pleases him. It's ridiculous for us to think that, that keeping a rule more than caring for people is pleasing to God. Isn't that how some people live? But I'm doing all the right things and I'm being such a good Christian and yet they don't give, I'll say a hoot, as my filter works, a hoot about anyone else. You're like, but how is that good before God? This is what it says in Romans chapter 13. If we love one another, this actually fulfills all the laws and helps you overcome all the laws. Verse 8, chapter 13 of Romans. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. It's amazing how I find that we as Christians today can do all kinds of spiritual things and somehow think we're all good and yet leave people on the back burner. We can even come to church on Sunday and we can be so intent on getting to church to do our spiritual thing that we leave someone on the side of the road. Hurting and helpless and Maybe destitute. We get so running from one religious thing to another religious thing to all of our religious practices to make sure we have this little holy huddle that we don't interact with people at all. And you look at the whole New Testament, you're like, God's not honored by that. And again, I'm not saying throw out all your, all your traditions. I'm not saying like throw out the Bible. There's 1,050 commands or more in the New Testament. So there are some things that God expects, but not as we do to earn favor with him, but out of, out of the overflow of the Holy Spirit working in us, that's where they flow. But the reality is we can't be so focused on keeping all the commandments, even the New Testament, and forget about people. Then we've missed the whole point of God and what God wants our lives to accomplish here on earth for his kingdom. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13, the passage that most people want to be shared at their weddings, talks about love. And it says that we can have speak in tongues, which is like a pretty spiritual thing. We can have prophetic power. We can have faith. We can have benevolence towards others. But if we don't have love, all we are is a resounding, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, when we pray, all Jesus hears is la, 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 la. When we sing, it's just like a junior high garage band. It's just like a clang, clang, clang. You ever heard one of those? They're not good. It's not rules over people. As we love God, we aim, to do, we aim to keep his laws, but we put people as a priority in our lives. Here's, here's the next thing we want to learn, and it's, uh, it's Jesus over the Sabbath. Jesus makes it clear in here that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Whereas Sunday might have been, or Saturday actually back then might have been the Sabbath rest. When it comes to the new thing, guess what? We don't need a day to set aside per se in the way that they did in the Old Testament for Sabbath rest. You know why? Because when we come to Jesus, he is everything the Sabbath was meant to be. He is our 100% complete Sabbath rest that we find only in him. Does that make sense? Take this day off and... Be devoted and you'll find rest and renewal and refocus. When we come to Jesus, it's like a continual rest and refocus and renewal because we have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit within us to grow us and strengthen us and do all the things that God wants to do in us and through us. In fact, it says in Colossians 2, for those of you who might struggle with this line of teaching, it says this, therefore in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, what you eat or what you don't drink, what you eat or what you don't eat, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. 
These are a shadow of the things to come. These are pointing to when Jesus came, but the substance belongs to Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfills all that we need and long for in this life. Romans chapter 14, verse 5, one man considers one day more sacred than another, or woman. Another man or woman considers every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. In your own heart, in your own relationship with God. I know some of us have grown up with, with different traditions. And, and, and if you believe that a Sabbath is supposed to be the day that you do this, this, and this, then amen, go do it for the glory of God. Knock yourself out. Be blessed. Love the Lord in that way. If your heart's into it and you love it, then do it. Like All freedom. If you weren't raised that way and you're trying to figure it all out, you, there's no, no moral obligations that you... All these things that we make up, right? Like you can't eat out and you can't do these things. Like, like it doesn't say that in the scripture. I just read for you some passages. But don't start thinking that everyone has to do it like you or think like you or else they're not Christian or they're not spiritual. That's just, our spirituality comes from what? Jesus. Who he is, first and foremost, and out of who he is, then flows what we do. In fact, this whole debate about the Sabbath that comes up in churches a lot, it's interesting to note that Sabbath keeping was not one of the commands the apostles felt necessary to force on any Gentile believers in Acts 15. Acts 15, they're like, well, what are we going to do with these Gentiles? They're coming to faith and they have to adopt our customs or not. Well, this is one of the things they're like, oh, they didn't even put it in there for some reason. What do you think that reason is? It's not that important to God, maybe. Here, here, here's the bottom line. For Christians, Sabbath keeping is a matter of spiritual freedom, not a command from God. Interesting to note that we sometimes think we shouldn't work on the Sabbath. You know what I'm doing right now? You get it, right? Started at 6 a.m. John 8, 36 says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, you don't want to miss this point as well, though, because I think this is throughout Scripture at the same time. Even though there's no legal obligation now upon us to observe a Sabbath, what was a Sabbath given to us for? For our benefit, right? Not so we can impress God, but for our benefit. And so there is something to say in the New Testament about us following suit with some of the things God said in the Old Testament. Remember, I said we don't throw it all out. That's just ridiculous. Don't throw it all out. That we set ourselves up for health and for benefit in this life. And one of those things is, why did God say to take a day off? Because the people in that day needed what? A day off. As you know, most of you, I learned this lesson hard, the hard way last year. Rest is good. Rest is important. In fact, I would propose to you that rest is necessary at least one day a week to stop all activity to, to stop working and show that you actually trust God with your job and your business and all those things, to stop and commit it to the Lord, whether that's Sunday or Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'm not sure it's that big of a deal to God. I think worship attendance is massively important to God. You can't skip church because this is where we get together to have our spiritual, our spiritual fire lit and our spiritual feeding for the week. It's, it's like our spiritual smorgasbord that just catapults you to the rest of the week just to want to eat food the rest of the week and to nourish yourself and, and to get that fire lit again. We don't, we don't skip those things. We don't, church is a priority for us, but the day of rest, I just encourage you to take a day of rest. If it's Sunday for you, like, there's no rules around that. You, you, you do what you find enjoyable and relaxing on Sunday. For us, sometimes it's going for a walk. More than 1,999 steps, I assure you. <laughs> Unless Zach gets his way, then it's 40 steps. 
Watch a football game. Enjoy your family. Those are all good things. If you, your conscience can't do that, don't do that. Do what your conscience can do. Maybe don't eat out and go home and just spend time. there. That's, that's good. That's great. As long as your heart's right before the Lord. But here's what I want to tell you. The Sabbath thing, the Sabbath is still a principle for us in the New Testament that we need rest. Or else you end up like I was last year, burnt out and no good to anybody. Because we don't need a Sabbath anymore. Baloney, we need a Sabbath. Some of you need a Sabbath. Some of you need to take time and put margins in your life to create time where you can actually seek God and see God. We run so fast, we wonder why God's not answering our prayers. We wonder why God's not, not interacting in our lives. He is answering our prayers. He is interacting in our lives. But we're running so fast, we don't have time to hear him or see him. And we treat God like the drive through at McDonald's. Well, it's been like 40 seconds. Where's my food? And yet a Sabbath is so healthy and so important and so necessary for us. But it's not the be-all and the end-all in our lives. Jesus came to make everything new. Jesus came that he would be the be-all and the end-all in our lives, that he's all we need, that he's all we long for, that he is the one where we find our freedom. He is the one where we find our life. He is our everything. It's a new day. You have Jesus, you have it all. You don't have Jesus, you're missing every aspect of what God's designed for you to be and to do in this life. But we as believers can simply lift our eyes to the heavens today and say, thank you, Jesus. You set me free. You're my hope. You're my life. You're my substance. You're my everything. So the final application for this is very simple. No matter who you are, where you are today, flip your eyes to Jesus because what's waiting for you is a whole new life. It's a whole new way of living and loving and relating to God in a way that's going to be meaningful and fulfilling and it's going to last for all of eternity. The pressure's gone. It's off of us. It's on Jesus. Guess what? He did it perfectly in every way, in every form, in every fashion. Jesus is it. Let me pray. God, your word's awesome. Thank you, Father, for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins that we might have new life in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the church which equips us and empowers us to to know Jesus and to live our lives for your glory. God, I pray that every aspect of this sermon would sink deep into souls only as you see fit. The things that don't need to be heard today, God, would you steal those away? The things that need to be driven deep into our souls, drive those deep, Lord. May your spirit work and may your spirit be powerful as your word is preached today. Father, give us hearts to have relationship over ritual. God, help us to put people over, over over laws and customs, and God, help us to simply rest and find our everything in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see your son today as the one who doesn't just revolutionize the world, but revolutionizes our lives today. May we love you more today, God. May we seek you with greater attention and greater affection. Father, would you truly be not just our Savior, but our Lord, would we bow low now and lift you higher in Jesus' name, amen.